0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST code ACAST.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince has the place to score
0: high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Where's everybody going? What a day this is. Barry Weiss leaves the New York Times... Andrew Sullivan has left New York Magazine. These are two biggies. Matt Taibbi of the um, Rolling Stone magazine is doing his own thing. Something's happening, man. They've had just about enough. There's been revolution. It's like the 1979 Iranian Revolution where students took over the country. Essentially, it's this time. There's no Ayatollah Khomeini. It's just uh, you know radical progressivism, Marxism, whatever is the is the figurehead. But it's a religious revolution. There's no doubt about that. It's happening at these newspapers where the staff, the reporters, the, the line employees essentially have taken over and uh, toppled the editors and cast them asunder. And some of the people with level heads in these places who – uh who you know went into journalism for journalism reasons not uh, advocacy and activist reasons have said i'm freaking out of here they're looking at the landscape and saying i'll just put out a newsletter i'll do my own podcast and i'll i'll just make my money there it's just not worth it In i have been i've had the same thing where i've written columns and had my own co-worker in years past my own co-workers attack me for my columns on social media these are working reporters it's not something that's really allowed. It's, it's it's a church and state thing. You don't, as a working reporter, first of all, you don't attack anybody in your own newspaper. But those of us who wrote off of the who wrote opinion pieces, co- uh, columns, and and op eds, et cetera, to have reporters go after you for, for the content you're putting out, in the name of the paper. Now, I, I, I never once ever called out a, a reporter or a colleague on social media. But it was always just one way. Beatings and beatings and angry meetings about um the stuff I was writing or tweeting, etc. This is just these are things that happen more and more. It's just changed. When Columbia Journalism or BU churns out a J school student, they're not expecting to be working a lot of them, I I'm I'm blessed that I work with some great reporters. A lot of them aren't expecting to be covering sewer commission meetings. They don't want to do that. They want to be superstars, they want to uh, and, and join in a mission and a battle that is more grand and and big and something more worthy of their specialness because they do feel they're special. There's no doubt about that. Their self-esteems are intact. And so they want to be on a... It, it, it's almost always they want to be part of a big progressive cause. And they feel, and you saw this at the New York Times, and they feel that, that their part of a bigger movement rather than be a traditional a traditional reporter to delineate and um, tr- you know to deliver news and information to readers, they believe they have a it's really a religious uh, mission. So there we go. Barry Weiss left and I just don't see I, the Times has just changed what it is. this is her um, her um, resignation letter is very interesting. she says, I joined the paper with gratitude and optimism three years ago. I was hired with a goal of bringing in voices that would not otherwise appear in your pages. First-time writers, centrists, conservatives, and others who would not naturally think of, themselves, uh, would not think of the Times as their home. The reason for this effort was clear. The paper's failure to anticipate the outcome of the 2016 election meant that it didn't have a firm grasp of the country it covers. Dean Baguette and others have admitted as much on various occasions. The priority was in opinion, that's what Barry wrote, was to help redress that critical shortcoming. She said, but the lessons that ought to have been followed following the election, lessons about the importance of understanding other Americans, the necessity of resisting tribalism and the centrality of the free exchange of ideas to a democratic society have not been learned. Instead, a new consensus has emerged in the press but perhaps especially at this paper. That truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job it is to inform everyone else. Brilliantly put. That process, the journalism of the Times, isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few, Columbia Journalism, whose job is to inform everyone else. She goes on to say Twitter is not in the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. As the ethics and mores of that platform have become those of the paper, the paper itself has increasingly become a kind of performance space. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences, rather than to allow a curious public to read about the world and then draw their own conclusions. I was always taught that journalists were charged with writing the first rough draft of history. Now, history itself is one more ephemeral thing molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. Talking about being, uh, you know, targeted by her own co-workers. She goes on, My own forays into wrong-think have made me the subject of constant bullying by colleagues who disagree with my views. They have called me a Nazi, been there, and a racist, been there. I have learned to brush off comments about how i'm writing about the jews again and quote several colleagues perceived to be friendly with me were badgered by co-workers my work and my character are openly demeaned on company-wide slack channels where masthead editors regularly weigh in there was uh, sorry my son young two-year-old yelling at me from the next door there's nothing i can do there were some co-workers there some co-workers insist i need to be rooted out if this company is to be a truly, quote, quote, inclusive one, while others post axe emojis next to my name. Still, other New York Times employees publicly smear me as a liar and a bigot on Twitter with no fear that harassing me will be met with the appropriate action. They never are. There are terms for all of this, unlawful discrimination, hostile work environment, and constructive discharge. I'm no legal expert, but I know that this is wrong. I do not understand how you have allowed this kind. Of, she's writing to Pinch Salzberger, the owner, uh, publisher of the Times. I do not understand how you have allowed this kind of behavior to go on inside your company in full view of the paper's entire staff and the public. And I certainly can't square how you and other Times leaders have stood by while simultaneously p- praising me in private for my courage. Showing up for work as a centrist at an American newspaper should not require bravery. Part of me wishes I could say that my experience was unique, but the truth is that intellectual curiosity, let alone, let alone risk-taking, is now a liability at the Times. Why edit, something challenging, why edit something challenging to our readers or write something bold only to go through the numbing process of making it ideologically kosher when we can assure ourselves of job security and clicks by publishing our 4,000th op-ed arguing that Donald Trump is a unique danger to the country and the world? and so self-censorship has become the norm. What rules remain at the times are applied with extreme selectivity. If a person's ideology is in keeping with the orth- new orthodoxy, they and their work remain unscrutinized. Everyone else lives in fear of the digital thunderdome. Online venom is excused so long as it is directed at the proper targets. Op-eds that would have easily been published just two years ago would now get an editor or a writer in serious trouble if not fired. If a piece is perceived as likely to inspire backlash internally or in social media, the editor or writer avoids pitching it. If she feels strongly enough to suggest it, she is quickly steered to safer ground. And if, every now and then, she succeeds in getting a piece published that does not explicitly promote progressive causes, it happens only after every line is carefully massaged, negotiated, and caveated. It took the paper two days and two jobs to say that the Tom Cotton op-ed quote, fell short of our standards, end quote. We attached an editor's note on a travel story about Jaffa shortly after it was published because it, quote, failed to touch on important aspects of Jaffa's makeup and its history, end quote. But there is still none appended to Cheryl Strayed's fawny interview with the writer Alice Walker, a proud anti-Semite who believes in lizard Illuminati. The paper of record is now... Uh, The paper of record is, more and more, the record of those living in a distant galaxy, one whose concerns are profoundly removed from the lives of most people. Ain't that the truth. This is a galaxy in which, to choose just a few recent examples, the Soviet space program program is lauded for its, quote, diversity. The doxing of teenagers in the name of justice is condoned, and the worst caste systems in human history includes the United States alongside Nazi Germany. Even now, I'm confident that most people at the Times do not hold these views, yet they are cowed by those who do. Why? Perhaps because they believe the ultimate goal is righteous? Perhaps because they believe that they will be granted protection if they nod along as the coin of our realm, language is degraded in service to an ever-shifting laundry list of right causes? Perhaps because there are millions of unemployed people in this country and they feel lucky to have a job in contracting In a contracting industry, in a contracting industry, yeah, reading's not uh, my strong suit. Or perhaps it's because they know that nowadays, standing up for principle at the paper does not win plaudits. It puts a target on your back. Too wise to post on slack, they write to me privately about the new McCarthyism that has taken root at the paper of record. All this bodes ill, especially for an independent for independent young writers and editors paying close attention to what they'll have to do to advance in their careers. Rule 1. Speak your mind at your own peril. Rule 2. Never is commissioning a story that goes against their narrative. Rule 3. Never believe an editor or publisher who urges you to go against the grain. Eventually, the publisher will cave to the mob, the editors will get fired or reassigned, and you'll be hung out to dry. Let me see... For these young writers and editors, there is one consolation. As places like the Times and other once-great journalistic institutions betray their standards and lose sight of their principles, Americans still hunger for news that is accurate, opinions that are vital, and debate that is sincere. I hear from these people every day. An independent press is not a liberal ideal or a progressive ideal or a democratic ideal. It's an American ideal, you said a few years ago. I couldn't agree more. America is a great country that deserves a great newspaper. The so idea, yeah, yeah, I'll let you... uh I'll spare you from my attempts at reading. That's Barry Weiss's letter. You can read it at barryweiss.com, B-A-R-I-W-E-I-S-S. And um, so, yeah, she's going on to do her own thing. I can't say I blame her. I'm sure she was getting paid well there. I can imagine they do very well over there, that and and at the Post. But, uh, yes, these institutions now have been diluted and toxified by this... This progressive revolution, and it's and it's the same thing, you know. I got in a, I guess, a spat. I don't know. I was I was criticizing Plymouth Plantation for now changing their name. It's not Plymouth Plantation anymore. It's Plymouth. What is it now? Where is that, Tom? What is it? It's Plymouth. This is on my Twitter. Where am I? Okay, here it is. It's Plymouth Patuxet. Now you may be saying, "What is a Patuxet? A Patuxet is not really a thing. A Patuxet, uh, as uh, an as inanimate object, like a plantation, I guess it's an animate object since it's a living uh, plant. But Patux- Patuxet is the Indian tribe that uh, was living in the area when the pilgrims came to Plymouth, and uh, they helped them out, and they were all dead by 1622 through disease. But now Plymouth... They've decided to rebrand themselves. No longer plantation. Plantation also is a very unsafe word, and it reminds people of slave plantations, even though the the very definition of plantation is a, an early colonial village. They're absolutely safe by definition completely, and there's no reason to do it. The state of Rhode Island also took pro- plantation out of their name, which was moronic. <clears throat> and so I said these things were silly, and in the in the Plymouth Patuxet folks said, hey, why didn't you read our entire press release on this whole thing? And so I did read the entire pre- press release on the whole thing. And I read a bunch of their press releases, and it talks about their mission after 400 years. um, And, uh, it, you know, and they've changed. And... Uh, so one of the the new things um, on why they're changing their names reflecting at our, says as our nation faces a pandemic and economic crisis a reckoning with racial injustice and a highly charged election year there is no doubt we have reached an inflection point in our history one that raises necessary and at times painful discussions but especially in these times this is what museums are called to do really i don't think that's what anybody's called to do just show how the pilgrims grew the corn uh, how the blacksmiths worked, and how the people who made cheese made cheese, and how the people who made wagon wheels made wagon wheels, and certainly the uh, Indians are part of that. The Native Americans, or whatever the whatever the accepted term is now, are part of that. But it was Plymouth Plantation was how and it was reenactors there. It was how the, the early arrivals survived and what they did day to day and you were you could ask them because they're all in character well how do you cook food what is do you, have you noticed cranberry bogs yet and you you it's you it's an attractive experience to see how those people lived it's not anymore now and they're pretty plain about it and it's probably a good business decision because <clears throat> you find somebody in cambridge massachusetts they want to they don't want to learn about the pilgrims and evil white colonists who who colonialists who enslaved the world and, and made the world terrible and to this day, you know, we're still reacting from it. That's why people are putting large texts of uh, political slogans in front of Trump Tower. No, they don't want to learn about the pilgrims. Those are not the kind No, no, no. Throw the word Patuxent in there. Now, now it gets interesting. Now it's good people who the bad, mean Europeans uh, oppressed and genocided. That, the folks from Cambridge, that's a little more uh, something that they're willing to consume and head down there, so it's probably a good idea, but when I went down, I went down there the last time I was there, was 1980, and back then it used to be about pilgrims, and the Plymouth Plantation, but that's not their thing anymore, and I guess that's fine, it is too bad that, that the Plymouth Plantation is now the Plymouth Social Justice Center, and Reeducation Progressive <coughs> uh, Academy, but that's what they are now, and that's what a lot of these other uh, other uh, people are doing all the social corporate conscience stuff, as as if Nike has to now pretend as a corporate conscience by writing checks to Colin Kaepernick for millions of dollars a year while having stores in China where I don't think black people can are allowed to go in because they have Jim Crow laws in China or their own version of it. But that is that. On the good side, I got to talk to a, a good guy named Rob You know, and he he worked up. In Massachusetts, he ran something called the Red Mask Group, was which is the Massachusetts. It was a really good uh, conservative um, blog website. And they were really powerful at one time in this state, which is a very blue state. And then Rob, he always did a little bit of radio here and there. And um, and then he joined Conservative Review, which was the home of um, Mark Levin and some other conservatives. They were uh, out of D.C. or one of the states down there. And now those guys uh, either were brought by or merged with the Blaze, which is Glenn Beck's uh, project. And the Blaze includes now all of those people, including Steve Crowder, and um, and like I said, uh, Mark Levin and Rob. You know, is the media critic for for them. He's a Lowell guy. Actually, he used to he used to play basketball. I think against Lowell, uh, Corey Lewandowski when they were uh, coming up in Lowell. He's a low guy, he's a good guy, a guy who's, uh, you should follow him on Twitter because he's big into traveling into counties and meeting people and doing things. He's one of these guys who's got a real lust for life. And uh, he's a learned fellow. I learned a lot about him today that I never knew and I've known him for over 10 years. So, there we go. Spend a little t- Don't be afraid to visit Plymouth, Patuxet, uh, it, uh, when you have some free time and the world opens up again. But more importantly, visit my friend Rob Eno's work over at The Blaze. Happy, happy and thrilled to be talking to my old friend and brother in arms of a perennial losing uh, political struggle in Massachusetts. Rob Eno, he is The Blaze TV media uh, critic and um, a renaissance man and world traveler as well. Rob, nice to talk to you again.
0: Hey, nice to be talking to the senior editor of my hometown newspaper, the Lowell Sun.
1: Hey, by the way, Rob, if you're making your way up to Massachusetts again, and um, you think that perhaps you'd like to go check out where the Pilgrims, um, you know, made a big uh, made a big splash, it's it's not really there anymore. It Plymouth Plantation is gone, Rob. It's now Plymouth Patuxet. So, what is a Patuxet? Well, it's not really a thing. It's a proper noun. That was the group of Indians that uh, who died out in 1622. But the folks at Plymouth Plantation have gotten rid of the word plantation, as has Rhode Island, because Rob, as you and I might have thought, plantation, which is in the Merriam-Webster dictionary as a settlement in a new country or region, is now a racial slur. Welcome to 2020.
0: Yes, because plantation obviously means place where you put black people to, you know, farm things. And it doesn't mean anything else that it's always meant. It obviously just means, means that type of thing. So, it, it, Which is going to get me canceled. Thank you. Um, yes. <laughs> I've been trying hard not to get canceled, but it's going to be the Tom Shattuck podcast that finally gets me canceled.
1: Can you imagine, though? It, and I understand we've been living with political correctness our whole lives we know how this thing works and it's about changing language and this and that but can you imagine living in rhode island and having your governor through executive order just take out plantation from the name of your state for no for for a historically ignorant reason it's not just that we're doing things it's just that we're doing things for stupid reasons rob and it seems unstoppable this year
0: I mean I'm I'm going to play devil's advocate I would bet that 95% of the people in Rhode Island didn't know that plantations was part of their name but it's still ridiculous um and it's still idiotic it it means absolutely it means nothing that's the thing is it's 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 made to make you feel better it means nothing but this this political correctness stuff's been going on forever right especially in Massachusetts where um in my former state we were at the forefront of it. I mean, in 1993 or 1994, the UMass Lowell, formerly U Lowell chiefs had their name changed to the Riverhawks, which is a bird that doesn't exist. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I, I wanted like the UMass Lowell raging rapids or something that actually exists. I remember at the time, the connector, which is the student newspaper at UMass Lowell. I don't know if it's still around, but the connector ran a, an op-ed cartoon that basically took the chiefs but took off the headdress and put on a chef's hat and said why don't we just drop one letter and call them the chefs? Oh.
1: <laughs> it's so interesting because chief is in sachem these are all these are all um these are all positions of distinction these are and all in honor yes in honor yeah. and when these teams were named it started in the 1860s is when you know the cities and towns started to use the names of Indian warriors because they were fierce fierce fighters. It just made sense. I mean, right? It's it's so misplaced. And the funny thing is, and you you and I both know this, and I always say this that this is not come. This is not a grassroots protest. This is coming out of. You know, middle upper class people in Mills, Wellesley, Massachusetts. Now, I assume people in Austin, Texas, which seems to be the the sproutlets of uh liberalism down there. And so, there's no particular party aggrieved here. This is just being uh, offended to be offended.
0: I mean, you you remember my 2015 trip, right? I took a 15, 2015 trip across the country. I was able to do it the way that I was working. I was contracting. And I was able to do my work mm-hmm. yes. as I went. I traveled 16,000 miles, 42 of the 50 states and four provinces. I went to numerous Indian reservations. I had friends that knew um, Native Americans. I talked to Native Americans. It's their team, the Redskins. Yes. They consider it their teams. As I'm driving by, it might have been this day five years ago exactly. I don't know what day in July it was. But I'm driving on the Navajo Reservation in northeastern Arizona, which you can't do right now because I think they stopped you from going on the reservation because of COVID. Driving through the Red, and I see the Red Mesa High School. The Red Mesa High School has a Redskins logo on it. (laughs) On their sign, they call themselves the Redskins. And you saw the Navajo tribe yesterday was like, we're upset you're not honoring us anymore. Can you call yourselves like the Navajo Code Talkers? We'll be happy with that. Um, and, And you brought up Sachems. I brought this up on on my colleague Steve Dace's um, program on Blaze TV yesterday. Um, and I exactly brought up sachem because sachem is an Algonquin word that is that means chief. It is for the place of New England. So it's New England people honoring a New England tribe. In fact, it reminds people that there were such things as sachems, which is right. an Algonquin word. And you want to get rid of it. He brought up He was in southeastern Michigan or southwestern Michigan, somewhere in rural Michigan. There there was a um, college team uh, called the Hurons in the late 80s, right? Right. maybe early 90s when they changed it. The board of the school said, no, we need to change the name. The Huron tribe went to them and said, what are you doing? You're erasing us from history. (laughs) We like that you're calling yourselves the Hurons because we feel – we, we we feel, you know, something with, with your school because of it, and you're honoring our history. And the board back then in the 90s, something that you would hear today said, well, you
1: just don't know when you're being oppressed. <laughs> I am so not shocked. That is so perfect. That is so yeah. perfect. That's like people saying, you know, you don't know how to vote for what's in your best interest. How condescending is that? That is, oh, my goodness. You know, uh, that's... Well, and you know what's funny? I have a friend who said, uh, Rob, who was very canny and said, you know, the best way if you want to keep your high school team named the Sachems is to go on one of the Facebook panels, which is where all these tribunals take place now, the, the Facebook community pages. He said, go on the Facebook community page and say you want the name Sachems taken down because they were murderers. Oh yeah, you get to keep them. Up. Oh yeah, then they're absolutely right. staying up. There's no way you do that. I mean, and it's 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 funny because there's no. It's such a stretch to think that there's something wrong with the name. And the, yeah, that's why there's all these constructs of cultural appropriation and people get fired for Halloween parties. Yeah, you know. And there are still, I mean, in co- common parlance, nobody is saying, you know, damn dirty sachem. You know, nobody says that. That stuff it's not there's nowhere near a slur you had, there's so many sl- steps to it being a, a slur that it's just a it's ridiculous if you were there's a team that plays for Oregon State Rob that could probably you could probably make a a uh, an argument that its name now has a, a a juvenile double entendre that maybe you'd want to suggest getting rid of that name I'm not sure you're familiar with the Oregon State uh, professional team. The ducks? It is not the ducks. No, it is a team. Let's. I'll just say that the animal uh, builds dams. Oh, the beavers. Correct. There you go. Correct. So by Uh, by the common rubric, you know there are other names that could be problematic, but I'll move uh, on from that. Another thing that's happening now, and you're one of these guys, Robin. I envy you and love you, and and um, obviously um, I've been sending my resume to you for the past 15 years. Um, because you're with, you're with a, a new media organi- organization, The Blaze, um, that gets to do things like have conversations without really limitations, um, open forums, you know, scary things like that. And today you had Barry Weiss, who was one of the better thinkers of the New York Times on the New York Times editorial pages, leaving. Matt Taibbi, I think, is leaving to do his own, his own thing.
0: On the Rolling Stone, yeah.
1: right. And he's also he's a true believer, progressive, but he's just said something's going on here that's toxic in the cancer. And post- he's been
0: doing that. He's been doing that for the entirety of the Donald Trump presidency. Um, he's one of the only people on the left. that's like, you know, maybe this Mueller stuff isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get people like um, Alex Berenson, who no longer works for The New York Times, who's like, you know, when they all say one thing and they don't allow a difference of thought, maybe we should like really look at the actual data. In real things, yeah, but the Barry Weiss thing was just—I mean, she is a, she's Jewish, mm-hmm. yeah, probably a Zionist. I mean, that that that's fine. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Jewish people that are. There's nothing wrong with that. She's a centrist. I mean, like she's a radical centrist. There's not many radical centrists in the world, but she's a radical centrist. She doesn't write with the exact, you know, left-wing party line at the New York Times, and she describes people putting axes next to her name in emojis when they talk about it in their 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 you know company-wide messaging system whatever it is she she talks about people being openly hostile to her views um, and being just unprofessional including editors um, section editors at mm-hmm. the New York Times um, you know they' they There is no more openness of ideas. Um, You know, James Pindell, right? James Pindell, Boston Globe. Very good writer. Very good political writer. Um, Facebook friends with him in public forums, So I can can say this. He's been talking a lot about the stuff that's going on in China, right? In in July 1st, they changed the Chinese laws and the people of Hong Kong lost a bunch of freedoms. And I was like, you know, that's happening here with cancel culture. And he said, well, there's a distinction because it's the it's the government and it's not, it is the government in China and it's not the government in the United States. Well, if you remember your history, it wasn't the government in Germany that that started to put through Hitler's biggest programs and biggest hurting things. It was the brown shirts, which were a party organization. Before Hitler really even came to full power, the brown shirts were going around doing Mm -hmm dictatorial and totalitarian things. I'm sorry, but cancel culture is dictatorial and totalitarian. It's saying you must have this one thought. You cannot ask a question. You cannot think otherwise. And if you don't, we're going to cancel you. We're going to make it so you can't earn a living. We're going to go to your bank and tell your bank to stop doing business with you. We're not. It's not just kicking you off of, of things. I, I remember back in during the Obama years, um, the bank uh, – the, the banking regulators were doing things like stopping banks from doing business with people that sold guns, even though it was protected under the Second Amendment. Hmm. They, they were running these programs to try and stop that. That was the government. That There are forces that are trying to take away your liberties. And I'm glad that I work for an organization like Blaze Media, where Glenn Beck exposes things like that, and we don't have to worry about getting shut down by social media because we're funded um, in a large part by our subscribers um, that are looking for this information. Um, you know, our subscribers to Blaze TV are paid subscribers. So I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate to work for an organization that is unafraid to tackle those issues, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and apparently, the a lot of the mainstream media is, and not only are they, they want to drive out people that have differing points of view.
1: Yeah, and also, you're right. It is the cancel cancel culture people, members of the media, and uh, other uh, semi journalists uh, activists. They're fully enfranchised with power with the power structure in this country. They're they're supported by Democrats. They are cheer led by Democrats. You know, AOC and her pals, it's not just them, but certainly, you know, they were happy. The the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement was almost fully sanctioned by the Democratic establishment in the country. Liz Warren bragged about it you know they look at uh, they still refuse to see that antifa is doing anything and say well if antifa means anti fascist well and they re- they refuse to to see the vi- the visuals of them burning buildings throwing bricks through places uh, torching uh, police cars etc but yes, they're fully enfranchised, whereas they consider the equivalent, you know, to to our to talking about Antifa to be the, the evil skinheads. What are the skinheads are totally disenfranchised. They have no allies in government. They have no power center that's, uh, you know, th- that can be legislated and codified uh, at all. So, but what's what happening in the left here? You're right. They cancel culture by calling advertisers, which is I'm. Sure, Beck has been in the receiving end of um, that. Is just part of their cancel culture. They've got that down. They do what they did it to the W E I in Boston, the, the morning sports show. They essentially stripped that the biggest talk station in New England. They is do they essentially just burned it because they could. They they called advertisers and they they intimidated the, the hell out of the CEO who wants no trouble. And of course, they're affiliated with the Red Sox who really wants no trouble. And it it is a real pernicious thing that's happening here and there's no end to it. They're This year, more than ever, they're just supercharged.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's amazing and it's been going on forever. Um, it's reaching a zenith, um, I think because people are stuck at home with nothing better to do but complain about things. Um, but it, it's... These people not only don't want a different point of view than what they have, they want to punish you for having it. And it, it goes across all things, right? Like, let, let's talk about this mask mandate thing. I want something to work to stop COVID-19, right? right? I want something to work. I've got a chemical engineering degree from UMass Lowell. I understand separation science. I understand that if you can see through your cloth mask, you can see in the holes, the micron-sized particles can go right through it to carry COVID. And if it floats in the air, like scientists are now saying, your cloth mask is really doing not much to stop it. But if you say that and you show all of the science, right, from before 2020, that shows that cloth masks are pretty ineffective and have been said you shouldn't use them to stop uh, the transmission of respiratory diseases, you're a mask truther. <laughs> you're, um, you're somebody that wants everybody to die, including old people, um, even though I didn't like governors up in the Northeast where you are send old people into or send sick people into old people nursing homes to kill them.
1: That's barely um, 50,000, Rob. That's barely 50,000 anecdotes. Right.
0: It's an anecdote. But I'm not, I'm not saying this when I say these things because I want to stop people from wearing masks and have them go kill people. I want people to have the information that before 2020, the entirety of the scientific community said that masks don't work for respiratory, that cloth masks, homemade cloth masks, don't work for respiratory illnesses. But that means that I want everybody to die. I mean, what changed? In three months, right? I mean, what changed in three months? I kind of want to get, and I've thought about it, I kind of want to get a um, a headband and just print on it, this is technically covering my face, and just wear <laughs> that as a face covering. But, well, I mean, you- I want them to work. I, I found some medical masks, and I use medical masks because I think that medical masks, you know, have somewhat of an ability to help stop transmission if I happen to have it. Cloth masks just... Don't. But it all comes from the same place. You can't have a differing point of view from anybody.
1: Well, I mean, I think, Rob, that to a lot of people, and maybe this is just what I'm seeing in social media, but to a lot of people in this country right now, the primary problem with this country is not COVID. It is Donald Trump and whatever if you can use covid to beat up trump then that is fantastic and that's what they're doing they don't they don't care they don't care you know they celebrated that we didn't have enough ventilators and then we had enough ventilators and that all went away there was no more celebrating whatsoever you know you know anything that that trump said wrong about covid um cuomo also said wrong about uh, covid although trump never ordered sick patients back into nursing homes but Cuomo's a big hero who's selling posters now for 15 bucks. if, if you haven't seen that already. Um, oh, lovely. He's selling posters that shows his victory of success over COVID Mountain, and it, it lauds him. And there's no – oddly enough, they left out the nursing home casualties. But 1,600
0: – Mario Cuomo, Phil Murphy, and Charlie Baker.
1: Um, Andrew. Mario was Zy- the, Mar, 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 Mario well, was the smart Bill one. Cuomo. Mario's – God rest his soul. Yes.
0: Andrew Cuomo – Charlie Baker and Phil Murphy in New Jersey. If their states were countries. Would have have the top three death rates in the world for COVID-19 per capita. Far and away, two to three times more than anywhere else, except for this tiny, small nation of San Marino. Who have <laughs> like, what, 10,000 or 20,000 inhabitants. So they're per capita death rate is pretty high because they were in that micro center of of Italy. The state of Texas, as of yesterday, today it's probably like 113, has 113, where I live, has 113 dead people per million population, right? And Massachusetts has six times that much at 1,200-ish eight times, no, sorry, tw- 12 times as much, 16 times as much in the state of New Jersey or 17 times as much and 16 times as much in the state of New York. Yet Andrew Cuomo has the temerity to lecture that he had the best coronavirus response in the entire country.
1: It's amazing. In- 17 Texas- times more deaths. Yeah. Cuomo has over 32,000 deaths. Texas has 3,331, I think. Uh, right. yes. And, and Yes. And he's throwing shade all over Texas. In fact, the poster that he's selling about his COVID victory contains a little graphic in the right-hand corner that reads, Texas, Arizona, Florida, all spiking up. So he's happy to enjoy... The idea that there are more COVID cases, even though there are far fewer deaths there, and this media, this activist media, is letting them get away with it. It's incredible. If it wasn't for outfits like the Blaze, you know, and uh, you know Shapiro's group and some others, you would never have heard this. You remember what the media used to be like when it was just—I mean, really—before Limbaugh punched a hole in it. When it was just the three networks. And we oh, yeah. had, we had, you know, remember that story of um, in the late eighties George H W Bush when he was looking at the price of a bottle of milk, something like, oh, and all, and the media all piled on and said the president George H W Bush is so out of touch, so such a rich guy out of touch, Washington guy, oil man that he is surprised by the price of milk. And for years, do you remember that story when he came out?
0: I know, but you would. Why would? Why would somebody that spends all of their time that hasn't shopped in four years know what the current price of
1: milk is? You're right, but that's a good point, Rob. But so for years, for 25 years, I thought that was just a fact. Wow, Bush really made a mistake that time, not knowing about the milk. I only found out in the last few years that that entire outing that he was taking was to explore the new scanner technology that was happening the scanner company and the entrepreneurs brought Bush to the store to say, look at our scanners. You just hold this thing in front of the scanner, and it'll scan the price for you. And Bush was marveling at it. And the media then told us what you just said. And I always believed that he didn't know the price of milk. It's incredible. And now finally we have, that's how it was back then. Can you imagine? I mean, we pretty much, the media pretty much damn lost the Vietnam war for us. If there was, When they had full control, it was so dangerous, Rob. And thank God that there are new media movements now or else we'd be screwed.
0: Right. And it's 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 gatekeeper stuff, right? They want to be the gatekeepers of information. And when they're not the gatekeepers of information, our friend Brian Stelter, he's actually not our friend, but Brian Stelter over at CNN, their media critic, gets all upset about it, that they're absolutely apoplectic, that somebody may have a competing point of view and may show facts. To back up that competing point of view. I mean, it it goes back to to the Ukrainian involvement um, in in uh, Donald Trump's Mm -hmm. uh, election. It goes back to, you know, we we had a whole series on how the Ukraine was under their, their former government was conspiring with the Clinton campaign to help not elect Donald Trump. With like actual proof, right? I mean, people went to jail for stuff. They got off on a technicality because they weren't basically read their Miranda rights, but they went to jail <laughs> for these things, right? But that was a conspiracy theory. It was unfounded because it wasn't what... Look, look at Mark Levin, who's also on Blaze TV, one of our hosts. Um, in 2016 or 2017, early in 2017... When we found out about the wiretaps, not the wiretaps at Trump Tower, but the surveillance of people at Trump Tower, um, that was all reported in the mainstream media. Mark Levin took all of those mainstream media reports, put them together, said that there was surveillance because the mainstream media said there was surveillance. Um, Donald Trump got a hold of it. He brought the whole they were spying on me thing. We go for three years with the media saying that Donald Trump was crazy. The government didn't spy on him, all of these things to find out that, yes, in fact, the government spied on them. And then there then the thing came. Well, if he wasn't doing anything wrong, why was he upset about them spying on him? Right. The <laughs> former the Barack Obama administration spied on a political opponent. And it wasn't the first time. Right. They did it to congressmen. Mm-hmm. They did it to Theresa May. They did it to she, a bunch of people or, yeah. or Angela Merkel, not Theresa May. They did it to a bunch of people. Right. Yep. Which is which is horrifying from a republic or democracy, small R, small D. Perspective. Mm -hmm. But it was the evil people like Mark Levin and Glenn Beck and others of that ilk that brought um, disrepute and um, were conspiracy theorists for even daring to ask that. It's like It's like people thought it was a conspiracy theorist to say that the government was grabbing your metadata on your phone until Edward Snowden said that it was happening. These things are conspiracy theories until they're actually proven to be true.
1: You're absolutely right about that. And even when they are proven to be true, when politicians and this uh, psychotic media – uh when they decide to, they're happy to whitewash it right out of right out of memory. And you just talked about Obama spying. You're right, and he got James Rosen too. And they knocked over the AP offices and took all sorts of stuff from the AP. That's absolutely the executive branch using the using you know, intelligence services to harass and spy on American citizens in a free American press. Done right there in the open, and they just took it. They just took and it. And Donald Donald Trump has done none of this. But they accuse him of doing it. Right. Back to Stelzer, too. Another thing about these people wanting to be the gatekeepers, like you just mentioned, was and if you go after them, for instance, if you make a meme that makes fun of CNN and you're some 22-year-old dude somewhere in Arkansas, CNN will dox you. They will go after you. They will harass you. They will use the power, the generalist horsepower they have and all those resources to ruin your life. CNN's put people on notice that they're happy to do it. And talk about... See, it'll ruin your life if you're a grandma in Florida
0: that happened to go to a Donald Trump rally that she posted on Facebook. They showed up to her dang house, Tom. They showed up to her house with the camera, and like in front of her house and put her picture up for the entire world to see, calling her a Russian collaborator.
1: Incredible. Incredible. I mean, can you imagine, by the way, like after um, the, the shooting in Florida, what was the name of the school? Parkland. The Parkland shooting in Florida. Just imagine what we saw in the moments after that shooting in Florida, CNN had grabbed anti-gun activists who were in a theater group in that school had put them under Klieg lights and had them re- using activist uh, roles Against the administration and against Second Amendment rights, seconds after we were told, minutes after these kids survived a shooting, they're under the lights, they're being exposed and may- being made famous because CNN needs them as part as as apparatchiks to make sure they can it, t- essentially take a political uh, shot at at Trump. That's child abuse. That's crazy. It's psychotic to think that that would happen. Why well, we actually, I actually interviewed a, a psychologist on the subject who, by the way, was, I found out very quickly, also a completely Trump hater. And I said, isn't that crazy to do that to those kids? She said, well, no, in some circumstances, it can be healthy for, for some person to find a, a practical cause to work through. And I was like, are you kidding me? They just got... There are there's police tape and chalk body outlines. They just got done with this thing, and they're up there. So, uh, so it's not just CNN who was disgusting and ghoulish to use these kids, but it's the entire left who was just was have become just un, un uh you know what uh, the unhooked or whatever. Uh, but just off the hook for this stuff. And I don't see it. I don't see it changing. If Trump loses, I don't see this energy going away. I see them using the Biden victory to codify limitations and regulations to shut you and me up
0: on speech. Oh, absolutely. It's, um, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, I was talking about with, with Jay Severn's passing, um, brought back memories of the, the, the 2010 campaign and and Scott Brown. And then what happened Mm -hmm. with all of the new, especially in Massachusetts, Massachusetts, um, the House of representatives went from 16 Republicans to 32 to 34 Republicans um, in 2010, and, and a lot of that was because of the Citizens United stuff, right? That right. said that you could actually that 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 speech was actually protected, um, and you could band together and support a candidate because it's speech. But they they want to make I mean there's people on the left that want to make the thing that I do, working for a um, company that identifies itself as conservative. Uh, To be paid political speech and be regulated (laughs) because we have I mean, we have a difference of opinion of the mainstream thought. I mean, the media is no longer and is by and large, I don't think it ever was, but the media is no longer just a neutral arbiter of facts. There are some people that do it. Um, But CNN, I think what makes CNN so bad with it, right, is that CNN likes to say that they are, Tom. CNN yeah. likes to say that they are the centrist, that they are the people that are just showing you the facts, um, an apple, not a banana, right. all that stupid right. stuff, right? <laughs> but, you know, at least MSNBC is honest with it. Their ads have, like, leaned forward. You know, they, right. they, they buy into that they're an activist network. Fox has conservatives on. I mean... We, there, there's when I wrote for something called the conservative review, there was no if, ands, about, or buts where my you know bias was coming from, right? I'm, I'm completely honest with my bias. Um, and I think that that's what makes someone like CNN even more insidious. I agree because they're not honest about their bias and they viciously attack anybody. That dare say that they aren't biased,
1: right? And they've got a they've got a history that that actually is fairly laudable at times. When you look at the first Gulf War coverage with Peter Arnett and Wolf Blitzer there, you know while the while Baghdad's getting shelled, you know it was the only game in town, and it was really good reporting. So I mean, at its roots, there was some CNN had a healthy journalistic outfit at times, but but at this point, you know, even last week you had Don Lemon and and uh, Cuomo. Laughing about reports of spikes in crime in this country, you know, saying it's a you know it's not happening. Now they're saying, oh, there's a spike in crime here in some places in the country. The murder rate's up like three hundred percent. The murder yeah. rate. Those are real people. A lot of those are most of those I would say are black lives, which I think is a thing now. It's yeah. remarkable what they spend time uh, supposedly d- uh, during news segments doing on that station.
0: You're you're absolutely right. It, it's it's it, it it just flabbergasts me. You mentioned Peter Arnett and Wolf Blitzer. Funny aside, I was driving into Oklahoma City on July fourth, and apparently this was like this across the entire nation. But my immediately thought thought was that Oklahoma City looked like uh, January 1991 with Peter <laughs> Arnett stuck in the uh, st- stuck in the hotel room with yeah. all the fireworks going off. It's absolutely, that that was the biggest. Uh, I can say F, right? The biggest F-U, yes. the government that I've ever seen in my life, um, was the amount of fireworks going off on this
1: 4th of July. It was actually quite <laughs> awesome. It was amazing. It was extraordinary to watch. It's just Incredible. So uh, this conversation, by the way, that we're having is a, uh, is a conversation that's open to all sorts of opinion. And we can go anywhere and we can talk. That's what this particular podcast is about. That is also The Blaze is about uh, an open discourse where forbidden conversations are still allowed to happen. You should be checking out The Blaze. Um, Rob Eno is a... a a veteran um, political consultant guy, I guess, and web guy, and I didn't know you were an engineer. Jesus, Rob! Um, yeah, you know. And uh, he is now the Blaze TV and media critic. And uh, I miss you, Rob. We need you. Once the world starts up again, come back up here. I'll take you okay, around. Let me in. I'll take you around Lowell under cover of darkness, and uh, and we'll use uh, we'll use what's left of my corporate card to uh, wine and dine you in the great city of Lowell.
0: Excellent. Always good to go back home. Awesome. Talk to you later, Tommy.
1: Thanks, Rob. See you later. Yep, yeah, bye. That is it for me. Please consider leaving a review, a five star review if you don't mind. I know I probably didn't earn it, but it's supposed to be a good thing. And um I appreciate you listening. Feel free to email me at any time. I'm Winchester at gmail dot com. I'll get a better email thing on the thing. All right. Money's tight, okay? Jeez. Oh, I should go on Patreon. Would you bother would you pay for this? I would feel like I was doing something immoral, I think, at the moment. But I'll probably learn to rationalize my way th- right through that if uh, if there's any possibility that I could uh, to monetize any part of my life with this kind of thing. Because I love this, and I love that you're listening, and I love the feedback I'm getting. Winchester at gmail.com is the email. You can find me at, um, at Tom Shattuck on Twitter, S-H-A-T-T-U-C-K. And you, there's some stuff on TomShattuck.com. It all has to be. I started this podcast before I was ready because I was just uh, my mind was just blown by the crazy unraveling we're having in the country. So, my I do have a website, TomShattuck.com. It's got columns and things on it. Uh, but yeah, you know, I might poke around and see if there's something good in there. I did write a really good column about uh, John Stewart about five or six years ago that I've reread now. And I thought really that's that's pretty w- well done. Sometimes I'm sometimes I'm not totally disgusted with myself. All right. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. Oh, wait. Hold on. You need the thing. Hold on. You know the thing.